This is a KSHSAA production. First down from the 17 is where they mark it officially. Here's Hancock breaks back at the 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Jane Hancock. Down to the other end, misses, shot won't go up the gun, and Eudora comes from way behind and goes crazy. Welcome to the first episode of the 2016-17 school year, the 22nd episode overall of the KSHSAA podcast. This is Jeremy Holiday with you. On the podcast today, we have Gary Musselman, the executive director of the KSHSAA, to discuss some recent rule changes within the association. And also, he gives us a preview of the board of directors agenda coming up in September. And we also talk about his role with the NFHS as, as the board president and what he expects to accomplish. Uh, as sitting on that board this year. We also talk with Cheryl Gleason about some volleyball items, and then we follow uh, that up with Mark Lentz to discuss some football things. So stick around and enjoy the episode. My name is Amber Garver, and I'm a student at Basel Linwood High School. The teammates and opponents I have had growing up have had a great impact on my life. Teamwork is a very important part of sports. You make connections with other people through sports, and it is important that you make those good connections. Teamwork is also a way to keep your game safe. If the team is not working together for the better of their team, then the game can turn unsafe very quickly. So just remember when you are out on the field or on the court this year to think about not only your teammates but the other team as well and work together to make that game a good experience. Okay, as the year gets going here for our member schools, we want to bring in our executive director, Gary Musselman, to talk about um, things that are going to be coming up on the board of directors agenda for our schools to partake in and and look over and decide if those are good changes for the association to take. And so, Gary, kind of introduce to us some topics that you'd like to discuss. Well, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, Every year in the fall and the spring, our board of directors uh, meets. They are the legislative body of the KSHSAA. And right now, that count is 71 people, the men and women who represent uh, all of the leagues of high schools of various sizes, uh, our middle school and junior highs. We have organizational representatives from five organizations, as well as eight members of local boards of ed, two from each congressional district, and then, of course, two members of the state board of ed. So all total, that number generally is between 70 and 75 individuals that comprise our board of directors uh, this this September, our board meets board of directors meets on Wednesday, September fourteenth, and their relatively short agenda uh, this time involves a couple of things that were brought forward in the springtime through the normal procedures that our our groups like coaches association, athletic directors, etc., uh, can propose. One of them has to do with in the sport of tennis, uh, the, our private instruction rule, private lessons and private instruction is permissible for kids in in all of our sports and activities. However, it's limited to an individual student, not group instruction. So our tennis coaches had kicked that around and proposed that doubles tennis teams really are kind of a unique thing in the sense that it's, it's one team, but it's two partners, obviously. And so this proposal seeks to give the opportunity for a doubles tennis pair to have, <clears throat> excuse me, the opportunity to work with a private instructor during the course of their season. And of course, what I'm talking about here, the private instruction rule is in effect during the course that an athlete is in season. So uh, an individual could go get pitching instruction or hitting instruction or 
you know, pole vaulting instruction or throwing instruction if you were a discus thrower or shot put thrower. So, you know, a baseball pitcher, etc. <clears throat> so again, uh, this is a bit unique in that it would allow a doubles tennis pair, but the language in the proposal is specific that it would be once that tennis team, that doubles team was determined by the school coach, only those two kids could go to that lesson. So our board will be voting on that. And I would guess that probably they'll be fairly favorable to that. It's, it is somewhat of a unique situation. Uh, the other action item on the agenda this time has to do in the sport of bowling. And for several years now, our bowling schools, which have grown to approximately 90 to 93 schools, I think, annually, uh, boys and girls both, obviously, uh, they have been interested in Baker Tournament. Baker is part of the postseason championship format. And there are different variations on the Baker Tournament format, but, but the, what they're proposing to us is that we would incorporate uh, Baker as part of the state championship tournament where the six players, a school would enter a team of six players in the state tournament, and after they've been, had their individual bowling, uh, if a team qualifies, all six team members would, would be part of the Baker team. And then, uh, you know, they would they would go through the Baker process with three games and, and derive a score and crown a champion that would be kind of a combination of Baker as well as individual. And it wouldn't eliminate any individual medals and anything like that, individual placings. Uh, it just adds another dimension. And, and the bowling schools tell us this is what the college formats are. This is what some of them are doing in invitationals. They like it a lot. They find it really team building, you know, very exciting atmosphere because everybody's contributing. It's very much, you know, everybody on the team bowling their two frames and contributing to that composite score. So uh, it sounds interesting. And I think probably my, my hunch is that our board will be very receptive to that. But again, you know, I'm not trying to predict. They could, they could say no. Uh, it will lengthen the tournaments a little bit, and that's always a concern uh, just because of the bowling centers are hard to get, hard to schedule, and uh, we stretch them to capacity you know, when, they, when, they're, when we're there. Uh, the other thing that we'll do when our board of directors meets is they will be going through an annual orientation, kind of small group breakouts, and then we'll spend some time when they're in small groups to talk about some possible questions for the fall. In the fall of the year, the last two weeks of October, as you know, our member schools engage in what we call regional board of education and administrator meetings. And that's typically discussion on emerging issues. Uh, obviously, we hope that, you know, a classification proposal might be a major part of what those regional meeting discussions will be about. And we'll talk more about that later in the fall as things become a little bit more in focus. Uh, as, as I think you know, people of interested parties of the KSHSAA know that we've had a very hardworking committee that's been at work for the last year, uh, 13 men and women from all over the state that have really been diligent and have worked through, I'm looking at a notebook that's about eight inches deep of stuff that they've looked through various proposals and models and trying to come up with what they think might be uh, the best proposed classification uh, system for our schools uh, in this day and age, you know, given the schools and the demographic trends in Kansas and, and the population shifting in our state and the school enrollment changes in our state. So I think, you know, this promises to be a year of, of, of great uh, expectation and, and lots of interest, keen interest in those kinds of things. Those are big issues, obviously. Uh, nothing real definitive yet, but uh, our executive board will receive a report from the committee 
and if they feel like the committee's work is at a point where they're ready to take that out to the membership for discussion this fall, uh, that's certainly something that we would do. Uh, I would mention um, just a couple of things that I know that were small changes from last year. As, as our schools know, every year we're constantly changing rules. Some are bigger, some are smaller. And I know Cheryl Gleason will talk with you about a fairly significant change in volleyball. Uh, it doesn't involve a lot of people, but it's it's an important change, bringing us back to what, what our original intent for volleyball as a girls' sport was. But uh, we had a couple of changes in, in our... Oh, and our language and our coaching rule, uh, nothing really substantive change in the rule, just some cleanup language to try to, to make the wording in our handbook rule about coaching instruction of kids in the summer and the off-season periods to be more in step with what our current policies permit. So we made some rule changes in that regard uh, as, it, as it relates to qualifications of coaches in the summer camps and those kind of things. But again, nothing changed in terms of coaches' ability to have those. And the other thing in soccer, it's kind of a unique thing. Uh, about two years ago, we put in place some rules about how many minimum days of practice were required before teams could have a game. We've had some sports have had that rule for a long time. Uh, soccer did not. So we put it in boys and girls soccer. We looked at it, you know, thought we had all the potential uh, pitfalls identified. But lo and behold, after about a year of experience, we find that in the girls' season, there is a shorter window of time from the start of practice to the first game. And a lot of times girls soccer players are like a lot of our kids. They're multi-sport athletes. So girls that might be playing basketball, and if your team made a deep run and qualified for state basketball tournament, it's very likely that if your team's in state basketball and you're going to go play soccer when basketball's over, you would not be able to get in the nine days of required practice. So what we've done is we approved a, an exception, if you will, for girls who were basketball players, only those girls. That's the only exemption, if you will, to the nine-day uh, readiness rule. So again, I think it's a prudent, reasonable thing to do. Obviously, if a young lady has been practicing playing basketball for four months of that season, she's athletically in pretty good shape and I would think can handle soccer. You know, in the spring of the year, for spring sports, we don't have the heat humidity issue that we do to start the fall sports, as we know, you know, right now. Um, obviously, you're concerned for safety and preparedness and, and a level of fitness for every, every boy and girl in every sport. But I think uh, it, it makes sense to, to allow that modification so that we don't have young people not be able to play in their first game because they're still needing to get one or two more days of practice in. So... Those are probably the main things. I would say on that last note, that last rule that Gary just discussed, that that's a rule that you know the public, ordinary public, wouldn't necessarily see or even know about that it needs to be changed. So tell us, kind of how that rule got brought to our attention. That hey, you know, hey, we know we made this rule to allow kids to get ready to practice, but what about these girls here? That that's just kind of, of the way our representation works. You can see how it unfolded, and that it's good. That's a good rule. Yeah, I think you're right, Jeremy. It's it's a great illustration, kind of a teachable moment to see that this was a proposed rule change from our schools. Uh, we had an individual school call and, and talk about that concern, and, and I shared with them, you know, the process of how they could go about proposing a change. And they took that to their league, actually, uh, and it became part of a, a whole league-wide proposal. Uh, but that, that process is, is illustrative of how we change rules all the time. Uh, our, our association is an association of schools. Uh, 
And as such, you know, an individual student or a parent couldn't say, well, I don't like this rule, we need to change this rule. A school can propose a change to a rule. If someone looked at our handbook, it's what we call the amendments bylaw, and it's, it's pr presented in our handbook in a couple of places, and it's on the website for the whole world to see. But the amendments bylaw says that a member school can propose changes, a league of schools can propose changes, a member of the board of directors could propose changes, our executive board can propose changes. It goes right down even to a single superintendent or a principal of any member school. I think the common sense of it is, it's just like anything else in a democratic process, the wider the, the level of interest and base of support for a proposal to change a rule, the better the chance that it would become you know, enacted upon. And in addition to that, I should say, and I mentioned it briefly in the early comment, that every year we have an established practice where in the April meeting of our executive board, we have five different subsidiary organizations, if you will, that are the athletic coaches, the athletic directors, the music educators, the speech and debate coaches, and the Scholars Bowl coaches. And each of those organizations has their own methodology of developing interest surveys and, and questionnaires you know, from their membership about rules of the KSHSAA and policies that our executive board implements. And they just bring forth every year proposals to potentially consider for change. Obviously, some are enacted, others are not, but that process is ongoing. So I think that for people who have a misperception that the Activities Association is a closed system or it's sort of a top-down system that the staff or that I or the people that make the changes, that's really nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we're very much about the schools make the rules and the policies that reflect their the will of the majority. And that's how any democratic body should function. And I think as a staff, as you well know, uh, our role is to kind of carry out the day-to-day -day governance of, you know, make those things operationally work for schools and educate our schools and help them understand and make sure they're complying and trying to continually make the organization be dynamic and respond to change. Um, and it does. You know, we've got four pages of things that we changed just last year. And in total, that's a lot of things, but uh, sometimes they aren't real big in their public awareness, but they're pretty significant. You know, you another one this year that, that's in that hopper is you've talked about before, I think, on these podcasts, is the baseball arm care proposal. Uh, the change in the pitching rule to move to a pitch count rather than the innings pitched. And, of course, we'll be talking about that with our board this this uh, meeting. Another proposal that you're aware of, and I think fans in the spring of the year were aware of and, and concerned for it, got lots and lots of attention, is that you know you and Francine have, have done some homework and proposing to me to change our state baseball softball game ending rule uh, now that we know we have the freedom to do that without jeopardizing our standing on the National Federation Rules Committees, we'll be looking at implementing a postseason, excuse me, a state tournament, not regionals, but state tournament game-ending procedure where we simply would not end games early. We'd play every game out to its full fruition, its completion, other than by run rule. Uh, so there wouldn't be any more weathers. Sorry, we're going to have to cut this game short and revert the score back. You know, which is always a very difficult thing to do. 
you know, it's nobody wants to win or lose a game that way. You'd like to play the whole thing out to completion. And, you know, that happened to us in the spring softball tournament, state tournament. Uh, very difficult situation for everybody involved. We did the right thing by rule. Uh, obviously, you know, we have a school that was, was pretty disappointed. Uh, and we totally understand that. But I would hope that people would res- would respect the fact that we see that and we think we can do something about that. And it's certainly our intent to do that. Well, that's a good uh, preview of what's to come on the board of directors meeting and in our executive board agenda. And also a couple rules that we did change this past year, and those can be found in the handbook uh, on our website and mailed to all schools. Well, coming up in September and this year, uh, the, our executive director is now the president of the board of the NFHS, and we want to kind of talk to Gary about what that's going to entail for him this year. And, and most importantly, he's got uh, a lot of things in the fire with the NFHS that he's going to have a great hand in, and we're proud of him for doing so. Well, thank you, Jeremy. First of all, I really want to thank, I've had so many contacts from people who've been very gracious and very kind to offer congratulations, and, and I you know, wholeheartedly appreciate that. Um, it is an honor. Uh, it, it's without a doubt you know, going to be a lot of work and responsibilities that really already have begun, but it's truly an honor, I think, of a lot of great people in our organization's history who never had the opportunity, and I truly mean you know, they were as deserving, if not more so, than I. But uh, sometimes it's timing and circumstances. So, you know, to people like Mr. Hartman, Mr. Pierce, Dick Brown, you know, those are, those are some just a few people uh, that I think of in that respect. But my term as the National Federation president has begun. It began in the first week of July with the end of our summer conference in, in Reno, Nevada. Uh, my colleague from Oregon, Tom, <clears throat> Tom Welter, turned to me and said, you know, it's yours now. And he was retiring at that time, so I think Tom was happy to head off to the beach house uh, in Oregon with his family and grandkids, and and that was wonderful because he's a great guy. But one of the things that I was first called upon to do is go to Indianapolis for a week. Uh, The National Student Leadership Summit was there for two, three days. It was exciting to be around, you know, 150 young people from all over the country and see their enthusiasm and passion and some of the things that they were involved with. Uh, We did an orientation meeting for new state directors. There's four new executive directors across the country here in the last few months with retirements of some of my colleagues. And then we had an orientation for three new members of our board. Every year, the 12 members of the National Federation Governing Board, three rotate off. It's a four-year term. So at the end of this year, my four-year term would be up and, and I'll rotate off and someone else from our section of the country will succeed me just as I did, you know, when I came on the board three years ago. Uh, in addition, they assembled 25 of us for a conference. It was a very intense two-day sort of a lock them in the room type conference on topics like sport participation and sport specialization, overuse injury, and just a lot of really important and highly, highly regarded medical professionals in the world of sports medicine particularly in, in youth sport, collegiate sport, you know, amateur sport from all parts of the country and all walks of life and even in Canada. So it was certainly interesting to be with a group of, of that magnitude and talent. We're actually working and putting the finishing touches on kind of a summary paper. And they, they decided to label that meeting, for lack of a better term, the Essentials Initiative. The essentials being the idea, these are the essential things for 
coaches and parents and athletes to know who choose to be involved in sport at a young age and on into the school years where we obviously you know are concerned and just in in ways to try to help parents understand and young athletes understand what's in their best interest with regard to safety and overuse and, and injuring avoiding injury and trying to maintain the sport experience as a fun experience and not just feel like it's a job, it's a chore. Uh, you know, there, there's a whole culture that's developed around sport for young people that there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of business interests to sort of plant their flag in youth sport and want to make sure our ballparks, our diamonds, our city is the hub of you know, youth sports of, of the nation. And, you know, there's a lot of dreams, and that's certainly great. You want young people to have dreams, but you want them to also realize that it's just this tiny fraction of people that are ever going to continue sport participation beyond high school, and even a smaller fraction of that fraction that are ever going to play at a high level or professionally. So for every little boy and girl that has dreams of being in those Olympics, that's great, you know, or being a professional player, power to you. But at the same time, for moms and dads to help them be realistic about how much they're doing and, and are they overdoing and are they injuring themselves? Are we caught up in this to the point that our whole family life is just programmed around our children's busy athletic schedule and they don't really have a childhood other than, you know, going from here to there to there to there to there to private lessons, instructions, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's trying to find balance. Um, and obviously people have free will, they have choice. Um, they don't have to play school sports. We know there's a lot of value for kids who do participate in school sports and school activities. And it translates into real life success in terms of grades and graduation rates, and lower dropout rates and better civic engagement, you know, better participation in civic life after you become a young adult and going forward. Uh, so, you know, I think it's the, the value of sport participation as we talked in this conference, goes well beyond the sport itself, goes well beyond the rewards, the intrinsic rewards of being good at my sport or whatever it might be. There are just lessons in human relationships. There's lessons in, you know, discovering oneself and what discipline can do and dedication can do and handling success, but also handling adversity. So, it's a big topic, uh, certainly not anything we think, well, here was the answer in five pages or less, but I think it's an important conversation for those of us in school sports to, to engage with, with parents, with coaches, with the officials who give their time for kids to do these things. And I think it's about perspective and it's about maintaining sports in the educational school setting and not just feeling like, well, we need to shut them down and let people go pay for this in the private sector. And if you want to be in sports, go pay the fee and be in a club. Uh, that's what the rest of the world does. America is very unique in having sports based in schools. And I think that for the taxpayer to understand, that's a really valuable return on a very fairly small investment. Uh, most schools tell us, you know, 2% of their budget. And the kind of return for those young people and the, the enhancements that they experience in their life, it's a huge positive. Uh, other than that, you know, summer conference, Jeremy, I'm getting ready to head off for basically about six weeks, uh, all through the month of September and the half of October to what's the National Federation calls section meetings. I'll be in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
for about three or four days here right at the start of September. Then I'll go to Charlotte. And from Charlotte, they come back here for our two days of board meetings. Then if I remember, I fly to... Uh, can you pause this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm in Vermont. I'm in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, there are seven stops altogether. I'm probably missing one. Oh, Indianapolis a couple of times. I've mapped it out across the, the map of the United States, and I, I see myself crisscrossing, you know, several places. Uh, it will be a very, very special experience. Obviously, I know people in all those 50, 51 state associations with D.C., and they're wonderful people. They care deeply about kids, just like we do here in our state. So it'll be fun to see them and their elements and to hear them talk about what are the issues for their sections, their states? And that's really the major reason that they asked me to attend the meetings. And of course, I'll share with them what our National Federation Board goals are this year and some of the priorities, and one of which, and I'll close with this, uh, the National Federation has made a significant commitment to kind of a public relations uh, campaign to try to help not just the people understand about high school sports and activities and the value, the benefits of participating on a national level, but also in each and every state. So, you know, we've made a, a commitment to partner with a company based in Chicago, Illinois, who's a world-class uh, marketing firm. I think they've worked with the NFL on the Play 60 campaign. Some, some will be familiar with that. And, and so they're a very established, highly respected, you know, public relations company. Uh, and so we think that we're working with good people and we've kind of put some of our resources, our money where our mouth is at the National Federation level on the board. And, you know, I, I hope that it'll create some awareness and some dialogue and some opportunities for people to step back and sort of think and appreciate this in a bigger, broader sense than just did our kids win the game last Friday night? Did we beat our old arch rival? You know, if not, should we be mad at our coach? Or you know, It's bigger than all of that. It's much more important than winning and losing games is winning and losing, you know, the, the development of young lives and, and helping set them up to be successful. You know, the scoreboard of high school sports probably really happens about 10 years down the road when young people who leave high school, where we see what becomes of them as they become young parents and husbands and wives and soldiers and engineers and doctors and lawyers and, you know, air, airplane pilots and whatever else kids go do computer programmers, I mean, because this is the future. So we're really investing in our own future, I think, by making an investment in kids and school activities. Well, that's just a little sample of what Gary will be uh, doing the, over the next year as NFHS board president, and we'd like for him to have the opportunity to get back and finish up some details for, as you heard, fly over all over the country. So, Gary, thanks for joining us and, and giving us a preview of the year to come and also some very important uh, rules that were changed by the association. Thank you, Jeremy. It's always fun to, to visit with you on these podcasts. More than 7.7 million American teenagers participate in high school sports every year, including about 103,000 here in Kansas. They're all learning essential life lessons, like the importance of hard work, time management, and self-discipline, skills that are helping them become better leaders and more active, responsible citizens. This message presented by the Kansas State High School Activities Association and the Kansas Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. 
As Gary mentioned, uh, Cheryl Gleason is going to talk with us about some volleyball changes that are occurring this year. And, and the first one that comes to mind, Cheryl, is is the handbook rule uh, that we change for volleyball. Yes, the board and the the executive board and the board of directors voted both unanimously uh, to support a change for volleyball rule 43, which basically says that volleyball will be a girls' sport, that boys are no longer allowed to participate. Uh, when volleyball started in 1971, it was offered to provide girls with opportunities to participate in activities. They were underrepresented. At that time, there were only two state events, gymnastics and tennis. And so in 71, volleyball started, soon followed by basketball, and now we have 10 sports for girls. Uh, in the mid-90s, we allowed boys to play at the middle school level, and since then, more boys have chosen to play volleyball. It's a popular sport, which is a good thing. But uh, some of the things that have been happening and the challenges we've started to see are really uh, directed towards safety. Uh, schools are saying we'll let the boys play at the sub-varsity level, but they have to play on the back row. And they're playing on the back row because they're bigger, you know, faster, stronger, and we don't want to put anybody in harm's way. Well, by having those boys play on the back row, they are then denying some girls that are great back row players to play. And so the decision was simply made to, to make volleyball a girls' sport, and uh, there are plenty of offerings for boys, and uh, we are excited about their interest and their passion for the sport, uh, and there are tremendous opportunities for boys to play club volleyball. So they're not totally shut out. And so that's one handbook change that you can see in this year's edition of the handbook. And the other uh, significant thing that maybe surrounding the game directly, which doesn't impact the play of the game so much as just the administration of the game, is a uniform rule that you've been getting people prepared for for the last several years, but this year it's finally in place. Yes. For uh, five years now, the National Federation said uh, that in 2016, July 1st, 2016, we would change the uniform rule. And one of the two uniforms uh, that a volleyball team wears would be solid uh, per Rule 422. And the reason for this change is when the Libro players started several years ago, uh, the rules were there in place to provide for certain percentages of color on one uniform to not be on the Libro uniform. And it just became so confusing and challenging for officials to uh, distinguish between the Libro player and the team player. And so because of that, uh, the rules committee decided, you know, we're going to go in and just say that somebody either the team or the Libero have to be in a solid colored uniform top. Both may be in a solid colored top per the rule, but they have to be in contrasting colors. So um, most schools have done a pretty good job. I know that there were some coaches that approached their ADs and said, oh my gosh, I've got to have brand new uniforms, which isn't necessarily the truth. And probably as a coach, I might have tried that as well. Uh, it can be a simple fix. It can be as simple as buying a Libero uniform top. Uh, and again, that is very contrasting to uh, the team uniform tops so that the officials can do a better job of making their calls. So that's important to note that it's not just because we want to see you in different uniforms. It, it's, a, it's important for the officials. Exactly. I mean, it's just there to help them manage the game. And quite frankly, it helps the players to uh, know who that person is on their team. And, and I think it's going to be an okay thing. Uh, we're not stressing too much. We've had a few people that have called of late and, and just wondered when this all came about. I think we've done a pretty good job in the past five years letting people know. We know that schools rotate uniforms. We get that. And this is not intended to be a financial challenge or burden on anyone. We are a little more lenient at the sub-varsity level, uh, especially at the middle school level. Uh, you know, we've always been that way. And so if they don't have it to the letter, uh, we're going to be okay with that. We'll be flexible.
So Cheryl is kind of finishing up uh, some rules meetings online and in face-to-face this year with volleyball coaches and officials. Uh, but this summer, for 30-plus years, maybe more than that, I could be wrong, uh, she was at a KAY summer camp. And kind of give us a, a summary of how that went this year. Well, 30-plus is right. Uh, we've had leader, KY leadership camp for 68 years, uh, and we just finished an outstanding camp at Rock Springs 4-H Center at the end of July. We had 300, no, excuse me, 232 students and 31 staff members uh, come to that event from uh, the 25th of July to the 29th of July. A tremendous opportunity for young people to discover their leadership skills and abilities, to discover talents and, and uh, traits that they didn't know that existed. Uh, we continue to build upon the attitude of I get to do things for other people because it's the right thing to do. So it's all about citizenship responsibility and developing an attitude for life. So we're real excited about what we did this summer and are working to carry that over uh, throughout the school year. And this school year you've already started some KIY meetings uh, throughout the area of the states. Just got through, yes, visiting the six schools that are going to be hosting the regional conferences this fall. Uh, they're all excited and ready for this opportunity to entertain and, and welcome guests into their school. And again, our theme, Lights, Camera, Action, uh, really speaks a lot to what we want these kids to do this summer or this school year. Uh, Lights really talks about an awakening, an awareness, uh, an appreciation, and understanding of what needs to happen. Uh, camera talks a lot about the focus and the preparation to get ready to do that. And then action is just action. Uh, putting the plan into place. Uh, you can have a great plan, but if you don't put it to play into play, uh, it's it's all for naught. So we're really trying to motivate our kids to see that you don't have to do a lot to make a big difference in the lives of others. Okay, why activities will be going on throughout the year and and. Stay attuned to those on our website and also follow the KAY on Twitter. They do a good job of keeping their uh, members updated. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Paul Patton, and I'm a student at Cape and Mount Carmel Catholic High School in Wichita, Kansas. Academic achievement is one of the most important goals to strive for in your high school career. It opens doors that lead to lifelong success. As a student, don't get discouraged if classes are hard or you're struggling in school. Remember to keep your head up and keep working diligently. A message from the Kansas State High School Activities Association and the Student Advisory Team. Football season is definitely just around the corner in a couple weeks, and we want to bring in Mark Lentz to talk about uh, the season ahead, and he has been doing the tour of Kansas this year with his football rules meetings. So, Mark, uh, tell us a little bit how those meetings are going and what you're discussing. I know, obviously, High school football, if anybody pays attention, the emphasis is certainly on player safety. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I think we've had some really great attendance from our officials around the state and covered the northwest portion of the state, the, the southwest, um, now the northern and the central part, and working on the uh, eastern part of the state uh, here in the next two weeks. So, yeah, we're obviously looking very forward to the uh, season because it's an opportunity for kids to uh, – shine on a Friday night, and as well as Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday nights. So there's so many different uh, nights that football is being played. And we just want some consistency in our officiating and want everybody to understand the uh, points of emphasis as we move forward. As we look into um, the actual playing rules, I think one that was kind of significant uh, for a lot of running teams and, and, and maybe passing teams, I guess, is, is, is the free blocking zone, a rule change there. Yeah, basically, the, the only true rule change is that uh, clipping is no longer legal, legal within the free blocking zone. 
Um, not that clipping actually took place a lot because it's very difficult to do inside that uh, inside that zone. But there is an emphasis with the free blocking zone, um, with officials and coaches as a reminder of when you can block in that zone below the waist, and it is important to understand that. So really putting emphasis on, you know, very few people are taking hand to hand snaps now. They're in a shotgun pistol formation and. You know, understanding that the only time you can block below the waist in, in one of those formations in a shotgun snap is is immediately at the snap. So we're kind of uh, putting that emphasis there as to, uh, you know, protect the athletes, you know, in their lower leg area. So hopefully those will uh, be good emphasis and will be uh, things that are done on a consistent basis. Um, one thing that is definitely going to be changing this year, and I think, the, the state knows about 5A and 6A playoff uh, format. But one thing we're going to do here in the office is kind of keep track of those schedules as they go along throughout the season. So enlighten us a little bit about that process. Yeah, absolutely. And in those two classifications, they are no longer in districts. And that's that's new and really new for what we've done over the last, uh, you know, 30 years here in this office. But uh, those two classes scheduled their first eight games and – and they will play an eight-game regular season. Then after the eighth game, we will seed them one through 16 in the east, one through 16 in the west, and they already know who's in the east and who's in the west. And then uh, they will play a bracketed for starting week nine. For example, one will play 16, two will play you know, um, 15, five will play 12. It's kind of like the NCAA basketball bracket where people will be interested to follow. But I think it's a, it's a good change. It'll be a positive change moving forward, and – Obviously, I'm sure there'll be some wrinkles that need to be fixed, you know, at the end of this cycle. But uh, it's just something you learn from and look at. And and I think it will be exciting for kids, for fans, for schools, et cetera, within those uh, two classifications. Well, I know week one is just around the corner, but it's never too early to look at the postseason. Uh, state sites this year uh, going back to the same places. We are. Um, we're very happy with uh, the uh, people that put on those uh, – state championship games and the amount of uh, time and effort that goes into communities being part of that. And, you know, obviously we hope that Mother Nature is cooperative this year and we have great weather and and those type of things. But obviously we live in the state of Kansas and you never know what could happen. You know, we're very fortunate to start this year where we haven't had extreme heat um, when we started practice, but obviously that could change, you know, within the next two weeks. But in Kansas, you just never know, and, and that's okay. And the game of football is, is an outdoor sport and played in elements, and I think uh, you know kids kind of relish the opportunity to play in whatever the environment may be. Well, Mark has the wrestling test sitting in front of him, so that means wrestling season's just around the corner too, I think. But we'll definitely be talking again with Mark as, as the fall uh, closes and, and the winter begins with wrestling. Thank you, Mark. That'll be a wrap for this episode of the KSHSAA podcast. And just a reminder that the volleyball season and boys soccer season starts August 26th, this Friday, uh, for those teams that have had at least nine days of practice. And the football season will start over a week from now. So it's all getting ready to go this fall. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks to discuss some other fall activities and get ready for the winter season. Thanks for joining us.